right, well, this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, uh, looking at verses 21 through 30. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said, that's not. That's a wrong slide there. Sorry, <laughs> that was fourteen twenty. Okay, <laughs> chapter twenty two, verses twenty one, beginning in verse twenty one. Uh, but behold, the hand. It is Jesus speaking here. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been, term- been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which which of them it could be, who was going to do this. A dispute also rose among them uh, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, and Jesus uh, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So as we jump back into the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves at uh, the moment right after the disciples have eaten the the Last Supper with Jesus. And Jesus' arrest is right around the corner, and it is significant in itself, uh, um, but but we find here a focus uh, not, uh, not only on Jesus, but on his disciples. And as disciples of Christ, we should thus be keenly interested in what Luke has to present to us about being a disciple of Christ. What kind of person does, uh, does, does, uh, is a disciple of Christ? And, and we ask that because we can get a distorted view about what disciples are like or, and, and what Jesus expects his disciples to be like. Uh, many, I would argue, have a false and unrealistic view of what disciples are, uh, uh, honestly believing that you know, a, a disciple of Jesus is, is, is effectively a perfect person, a perfect Christian, devoid of struggles with sin, one who never doubts, one who is all re- always ready to, to pray, to love, and to serve. Now, I would ask that person if they've read the Bible. And read about the actual disciples Jesus had. Or read the letters of Paul written to the church, which filled with all these disciples and all kinds of problems. And this matters because there are those who have heard that that, that, and seen that. And they realize that they fall far short of that perfect standard that is set before them. And so they reject it because they find it impossible. 
And they just conclude the exact opposite, that, you know, disciples of Jesus aren't these perfect Christians who, who don't struggle with anything. They're just normal sinners, and really all that other stuff that doesn't, doesn't matter about holiness and the Bible. And, you know, good, like, like, like I, I can just be a disciple of Jesus just as I am, and, and Jesus doesn't expect me to improve. He doesn't have any demands of me. He doesn't have anything like that other than me just be a, a, a loving, nice person. And, and our text this morning is, is very revealing, though, because it reveals a couple of things. First, it reveals the weakness and even the depravity of the hearts of Jesus' own disciples, as much as it also reveals Jesus' own goodness towards his disciples. And we'll look at each of those this morning so verses 21 to 25, Jesus reveals the depravity of his disciples. It's kind of a you know, bad news, good news format to our sermon this morning. And so first he reveals uh, the capacity that we have for evil, uh, even as his disciples. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus reveals this uh, as uh, though they are sharing this intimate table fellowship that one of the people present at the table is going to betray him. Now we know that is Judas, but, uh, but for someone to be invited in to share that fellowship, that table fellowship, uh, and to then betray their master was, would, would have been scandalous uh, in that time. And, and the disciples began to understandably question each other to find out who's it going to be. Is it, you know, it's like, I know it's not me. Is it you? You know, trying to figure out. And there's, they didn't realize apparently that it was Judas. Uh, because, you know, to be a Judas, a Judas is actually a fairly popular Jewish name at the time. To be a Judas at that time was not uh, a bad word. Uh, to be a, uh, but to be a Judas now is to be a betrayer. And, you know, and the thing is, is, well, you know, we may apply that term Judas to others. We tend to have a better opinion of ourselves, right? We may point to other Judases, but we would never point to ourselves as a Judas. But we really should not hold such high opinions, the Bible tells us. There is, uh, there is nothing even, uh, there's nothing inherently virtuous in us that would prevent you and I from being a Judas, even a Judas Towards Jesus, if we were there. Now, this this might be something that that, that people find offensive, uh, but Luke didn't record the, this this what Jesus says here uh, to affirm us in our confidence that we, if we were there, we would never sink so low as to betray Jesus. Rather, as Darrell Davis put in his commentary on this very point, he says Luke here means to unsettle us. He wants to inject some horror and dread into us, lest we too commit treachery against Jesus. He wants me to see that unless upheld by grace, there is, there is, there is no depth to which I could not plunge, no vice which I could not practice, and no treachery which I am not capable of. And how ready we are to turn to what is sinful prideful, selfish, vainglorious. We do it every day. And so this reminds us that what keeps us 
from the depths of our own depravity is not the inherent virtue of our character that we have built up by our own strength, pulling those bootstraps, those mighty bootstraps that we have pulled so effectively as others have not done. But it is the grace of God which has carried us day by day, even hour by hour. But Jesus here reveals the capacity for evil that even his own disciples have. And, I, and, 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 sh- and if we think we're not capable of this, we just need to just... <laughs> Very few people think of what they're capable of before they do it. And uh, I've mentioned it before, but I, it what always comes forward into my mind, lest I have a too high opinion of myself at any given point, is the man, the teaching elder in our presbytery, who gave me my charge as a candidate and intern as the presbytery, who guest lectured for Ligon Duncan um, at, uh, in one of my seminary courses about covenant theology and gave a very good discourse on it. That man abandoned his wife and children for his mistress and has never repented and has been excommunicated from the church. It stands as a warning. That is one of a, 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 at least five men I could, I could point to that I saw in our presbytery be excommunicated from the church because of the refusal to repent over their sin. And it reminds me that there is no depth of sin and that only the grace of God upholds me, and it, it, even while it calls me to holiness. We'll come to that in a moment. But Jesus reveals that our capacity for evil, even as his, his disciples, and then he also, in doing so, reveals our conformity to the world in verses 24 to 25. Uh, I love the disciples because the disciples are, I'm so much more, I realize the older I get, the longer I get in the faith, the more I realize I am like the disciples. When I was a young Christian, I was like, no, oh, those disciples, they're a bunch of dummies. If I went there, I wouldn't do what they did. I went blah, blah, blah. And then more and more, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really like these guys. <laughs> I'm really like these guys. Because just consider how they move from arguing about who might be the worst disciple, and it turns into an argument about who's the best disciple. You're like, yeah, that's, that's about how it goes. All right, that's about how it goes. Um, it would, it, it's... It, it's, it's, it's humorous and tragic and all too familiar. Jesus, though, reminds them that, that they, he reminds them and he reveals to them that they are considering the kingdom of God in terms of the way that the world exercises power and authority. That the, that the way that the world recognizes and, and reckons authority and honor comes through power that those who have it exercise over others. It is power which, by which they can dole out little favors, and thus they are called benefactors, he said. The disciples reveal that they are taken up with worldly selfish ambition, something which the Apostle Paul would warn the church away from explicitly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, because selfish ambition is destructive, to the church body and the church fellowship. And this is because, as Jesus reveals, uh, the, the church doesn't operate like the world does. But again, we see here that Christ's own disciples have been taken up with a worldly mindset, even as they apply it to the kingdom of God. 
And we must watch ourselves to see that we do not commit a similar error with the church. It's certainly possible for the church to think of itself in terms of worldly authority. It happened in the Roman Empire when Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire and, 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 uh, and became inseparable from state politics. It's happened in recent uh, decades where churches began to define ministry in terms of business and theme park attractive, attractiveness, seeking not co congregants but customers and patrons to entertain. It happens in the church when the church is tempted to compromise the faith so long it will, as it will grant members of that faith a certain uh, amount of political power in their own country. It, happen, it happens when, uh, when someone is nominated to be an elder because uh, they've been successful at business. Or they're nominated uh, to be a deacon because they're a plumber. Are they godly? And sometimes the business CEO should be the deacon and the plumber should be the elder. But such a worldly mindset it bankrupts the church, not just not financially. The church can have their coffers full and be ungodly. It bankrupts the church morally and spiritually as the gospel is redefined and lost. Yet even in the midst of all this negativity, like I said, this is the bad news portion of the sermon, right? This is the bad news, all right? Uh, uh, but we still see in the midst of this the strongest affirmation uh, that Jesus reveals here that our God is sovereign and we are responsible. Jesus not only declared that one of his disciples would betray him, but he said that this was predetermined as part of the ministry of the Son of Man. And as those who hold to a, a strong doctrine of divine sovereignty, we give a hearty amen. But then Jesus follows that with, But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And the modern reader often asks, if God planned it, then how is Judas accountable for it? If God predetermined that Judas would do this, then, then how is Judas uh, held accountable? And, and there is even a strand of wrong, errant thought that seeks to get Judas off the hook on that very point. That since God ordained uh, for Judas to betray Christ, uh, Judas is uh, somehow not guilty in some way but but jesus clarifies no judas is guilty and he is held account Je jesus clarifies here that divine sovereignty uh, of the, that god's divine sovereignty does not nullify it is not even at odds with the concept of human responsibility but again, how can God find fault if it was determined beforehand? Well, Paul answered that very question in Romans chapter 9, pointing to the unique position of the creator who has the ability and the right to do whatever he wills with his creation and that his will is in perfect harmony with his divine goodness and justice. There's not time to really dive into that whole doctrine today, but suffice to say that God overrules sin uh, and evil, but not in such a way so as to make him the author of it, or does he do violence to the will of his creatures who choose to sin? Or to put it more positively, 
God also works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. One pastor wrote many years ago that it is the greatest praise of God's wisdom that he can turn the sins of man to his own glory. And we say amen to this reality. Because it will be the sovereign God who takes the most wicked killing of his own son on a cross and uses that to bring life to sinners and to rebels and to make them into disciples of that very same son. Truly, what Jesus reveals here and what the disciples reveal is that it is the sovereign grace of God at work in us which sustains us in this life and secures us for the next. It is the grace of God that blesses our service in his name. And so we must take the call to faith, repentance, and holiness seriously, but knowing that it is all by grace that we are saved through faith, and not of works, lest any disciple should boast. And so Jesus reveals the depravity of his disciples, even as he reveals his grace. And and in keeping with that, Jesus reveals, in verses 26 through 30, his goodness towards his disciples. And in, do, and, and in this, he does this in two ways. Uh, first, he reveals the path to true greatness in verses 26 through 27. Jesus says that the way of the world with authority is not to be the way. This is emphatic where he says, not so with you. In the Greek, it's emphatic. Don't be like that. It's something different. The way the world operates with its authority is not the way that you operate. In the ancient Near East, the older was greater than the younger. And likewise, the leader was served, as indeed the master is served by his servants. And even, even today, we could say that not, not that much has changed. People are still respected and served according to their accumulation of wealth and authority. People are respected uh, uh, even, uh, even virtually online by how many followers they have, how many people they have uh, going after them. Churches are declared blessed or wretched by how many people show up on Sunday or the opulence of their buildings or the vast array of programs they offer. But Christ takes the way of the world and he flips it on its head. He says emphatically that his disciples are to live by a different code. The exact opposite, actually. He says that the true path to greatness comes not through selfish ambition, but, but not by collecting to oneself more and more authority, power, and possessions. Instead, he says the true path to greatness comes in humbling oneself and serving the ones you lead. And if you want to see the one who does it, Jesus says, look at me. The true leader, the rabbi, the true king of kings, the very son of God who who has exemplified this and will exemplify it on the cross. The one who lays down his own life for his people. The scholar Henry Morris brings a helpful clarification here. 
Because one might get the idea that Jesus is saying that if we want to seek high position in life or in the church, uh, that we must start by faithfully serving in a low position. He says that's not what he's saying here at all. He's saying Jesus is, and this is what he writes, he says Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. And that should be of great help to us. Because not everyone is gifted in the same way or to the same degree. Not everyone is called to the same labors in the church. Yet all of us can serve. All of us can love one another. All of us can pray for each other. uh, We can look for the good that we can do in the lives of those around us. Each of us can do that. And so Jesus shows us the path of true greatness, which comes through service in his name and after his example. And secondly, Jesus reveals the path of true reward in verses 28 through 30. And Jesus does something here that I don't think we expect him to do. Because given all that I said about the disciples and the capacity for evil and the worldliness and all this stuff, Jesus does something that I didn't expect him to do, that I don't think you expected him to do. He compliments his disciples. He commends his disciples. He says that they have stuck with him in his trials. That is the ministry that they have been engaged in for these last three years. Now they will abandon him soon enough, but it cannot be denied that these men have followed Jesus. And Jesus promises to reward them by the authority assigned to him by his Father in heaven. They will rule over Israel, he says, eating and drinking with him at his table. Now, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled about exactly what this means. Does it just apply to the apostles? Is it, is, is it just a picture of the church? And, 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 and I actually don't really want to go into that, um, uh, all that this morning. And, uh, you know, for more information, I would argue, go read the book of Revelation. But um, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees here. Because here are Jesus' disciples who just got done arguing about who who might be the worst one uh, disciple and who might be the best disciple, right? And they just got corrected by their master. And what does he do? He commends them and promises to reward them. And disciples of Jesus today, do you not know that he does the same with you? J.C. Ryle writes, If we are true believers, let us know that Jesus looks at our graces more than our faults, that he pities our infirmities, and that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Never had a master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never have servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ is to believers. Surely we cannot love him too well. We may come short in many things. We may fail in knowledge and courage and faith and patience. We may stumble many times. But one thing let us always do. Let us love the Lord Jesus with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And whatever whatever others do, let us with his disciples continue with him. 
and let us cleave to him with purpose of heart, end quote. You know how appropriate it is to consider this as servants of Christ, as we are nominating men for office of elder and deacon. How appropriate it is to remember that it is grace that upholds and sustains the officers of the church. And even more, Christian, to hear that, that call to greatness that Jesus gives us. Look not to yourself or the world or its principles to make you great, but look to Jesus Christ your Lord. Love him, follow him, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will bless you today and tomorrow and into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Because we come as those disciples who are so quick to argue about who's the worst and who's the greatest. Who are, who have capacity for great evil. Who have, uh, who have far too much of the world and its principles guiding us as opposed to scripture and your truth. And, so, and Lord, we are grateful that it is not based upon our qualifications that we are made disciples, but upon the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, alone. Father, may we rejoice in the goodness of Jesus towards his disciples. May any thoughts of pride and arrogance that we deserve to be disciples, or that we are better disciples, that may, may that be just put to death. And may we be humbled before you. And Lord, may we take up that call of discipleship, which is a call to holiness, a call to greatness that comes through service, a dying to oneself, taking up our cross day after day. Oh, Father, we pray that we would live as disciples, that you would teach us more and more what it means to be true disciples of Christ, and that through that pathway of, of grace-empowered uh, 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 service that comes by the indwelling Spirit and the Word, Father, we pray that we would become great disciples. Disciples defined not by greatness as the world sees it, but by the greatness of a great Savior who suffered and bled and died for his people and was raised from the dead. May we walk in his way, walk in his path, for it is the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Father, we pray this as disciples of Jesus Christ. May you bless it, for we pray in his name. Amen. Well, let's